I was reading through Isaiah 43 and 44. And I hear a vehicle pull up outside. My desk faces away from my window. So I turn and look, and here's a minivan. I'm like, who is this? And why are they interrupting my study? (laughs) And the door opens, and, and Brian and Ruth Young step out. And they're on the island. I knew they were coming, but I did not know they were stopping by. They just kind of popped in. Brian and Ruth, uh, if you don't know, are two of the missionaries that we support. They're getting ready to head back um, to the Middle East and Asia. They're going to spend about five months over there. So they came in, and, and Cheryl and I sat down with them, and we began talking. Brian said something that framed our entire study tonight. We were talking about the rapid and exciting growth of Christianity in the Middle East. Brian was sharing a conversation he had with, a, with an indigenous pastor, a, a pastor there in, in one of these countries, and he was saying, you know, this other pastor was saying, we teach the Bible differently here in the Mideast than you teach it in the West. He said, in the West, um, you typically teach more for knowledge and personal edification. We have found that we have to focus on teaching the Bible for obedience. And that clicked with me. I thought, that is what James meant when he wrote in James 1.22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I actually left out a verse there. Verse 24 says, he's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. That's what it means to hear the Word, but not, not to do the Word. And the doing of the Word is obedience to the Word of God. And we have, I think in the West, we have had such a backlash against legalism Early in our country's history, and some of the Puritan uh, perspective that we had early on was very cut and dried and legalistic and very obedience-oriented, but so much so that we got into a place in our history where people started saying, no, it's too legalistic, it's got to be about grace, and that's a good thing. It is about grace. But in the pursuit of grace, I fear that what the church has done is swung to the other extreme and we've forgotten about obedience and rather than it being about God's grace, it's more about how God can can please me than how I can please the Lord. And you know, if you think about it, the problem of legalism and disobedience is the exact same problem. It's no relationship. It's a lack of relationship. We become legalistic with Christian things, biblical things, when we have no relationship with God. Because without relationship, it's got to be about the rules. By contrast, we become disobedient when we say it's all about the grace of God. It doesn't really matter. If we have no relationship with the God of all grace, then we throw out everything. It's the same problem. It's relationship. But a relationship with the Lord, a friendship with Jesus, a relationship with the Father by His grace results in obedience. I think that's one of the obvious ways you know someone's truly walking with the Lord is that it is tangible. It is evident there's fruit in the life. There's fruit that you understand the grace of God. Jesus put it this way, Luke eleven forty two. He said, Woe to you, Pharisees! You pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done, Jesus says, and He says, without neglecting the other. 
You get that? Grace and obedience. And the two are only possible if we walk in a relationship with the Lord. Back in Isaiah chapter 42, as we talked about last week, look at verse 19. The Lord says, Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind that he is at peace with me? Or so blind as the servant of the Lord? And he's talking about Israel here. He says, You've seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. And the problem here, gang, is they were deaf to His Word, they were blind to His works, and those are two dangerous complications of fickleness. And fickleness happens also outside of relationship. You know, for God sometimes, not for God other times, is, you know, you're back and forth because you're really seeing how this thing serves your needs rather than how I can serve His needs And the ability, we talked about again last week, the ability to hear the Word of God, written, spoken, to hear His Word, and the ability to see Him at work in this world, it all is cultivated through obedience, through faithfulness. The more faithful I am to the Lord, the more I see Him doing. The more faithful I am, the more I hear That's not an issue of legalism over grace either because I'm saved by His grace. I am walking in His grace. But the more obedient I am to the Father, the more He reveals. And this is true throughout the New Testament Scriptures. Paul says in Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So obviously, Paul taught for obedience. And he went on to say, And having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. I like that. That kind of slavery is the only slavery I know of that brings absolute freedom. Slavery to righteousness. And that's what the Lord offers us. That's what He wants. That's why Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. If you love Me, you'll obey Me. In a legalistic mind, you're like, well, I don't know what kind of love that is, but I guess I have to do it. You know, to a disobedient mind, you'd say, well, how dare you say I have to prove my love to you? And Jesus just says something very true. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the way it works. That is the evidence that you love me. It's not, don't get the cart before the horse. Don't, it's keeping the commandments to prove something. No, it's, I love him and so naturally, I'm obeying. I'm keeping his commandments. Obedience. It is the best way I know of to develop ears and to develop eyes for hearing and seeing what God is doing. Now, after all, uh, we are not the point. (laughs) He's the point. He always has been the point. And in our puny, minute, little, you know, 70, 80 years, if we get that of existence on this earth, we are not the point in all eternity. God is. The Holy One of Israel. Gadosh Israel, as he continues to refer to himself, as he is lifted up by that name, he is the point. He's what this is all about. And it becomes absolutely clear in chapter 43. Look at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are Mine. And what we learn in God's relationship with Israel is it was never about Israel in the first place. It was never Israel the people of God for Israel's sake. 
It was always and only for God's name's sake. He says there in chapter 1, he says, I've called you by name, and you are mine. What was the name that God called them by? Israel. Right? Go back to the first mention of that name, Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is the first time that we read the name Israel in the Scriptures. When you study the book of Genesis, especially that principle of first mention becomes very important. First time words are mentioned. I think I've shared before, Genesis 22 is the first time the word love is used where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, up on the mountain to sacrifice. The ultimate picture of love, the Father sacrificing the Son, as we see with God the Father and Jesus. That's the first mention of love. Highly significant. Equally significant, I believe, is the first mention of the name Israel, Genesis 32, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Which is great. <laughs> it shows you the kind of power he was really dealing with. You know, as they wrestled all night long, and obviously this man was holding back. Because at one point, when he, when he gets to the point that Jacob is just not letting go, he finally says, alright, I've had enough. Bing! Ah! <laughs> then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now see, that's Jacob always looking for a blessing for himself. Making it about himself. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Yaakov. Now, this is God, by the way. It's called a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. God in the flesh, wrestling here with Jacob. We're not going to go into why. If you want to figure that out or consider that more, go listen to the study on Genesis 22 or 32. But why, if this is God, does he ask what his name is? Well, obviously he knows. But he wants Jacob to say it out. What is your name? My name is Jacob. Heel catcher. That's what the name means. Schemer. Heel catcher because he came out after Esau, right? Grabbing his heel, trying to pull Esau back in so he can get out first. Picture of Jacob's life. My name is heel catcher, he says. And he said, verse 28, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Yisrael. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel, upright of God. Or, or God prevails. Or one who contends with God. Or one who perseveres with God. Now, it's an interesting name, Israel. Israel means both one who contends with God, as Jacob was contending and fighting and wrestling with God, and it means one who perseveres with God. Now that is highly significant because that is the choice that faces every man, woman, and child who has ever walked the face of the earth. You can contend with God or you can be preserved by God. Those are the two options we have. The difference between contending with the Lord or persevering with the Lord, being preserved by Him, the difference is obedience. If you are disobedient to the Lord, you contend. If you are obedient, you persevere. And He maintains you. Obedience is the difference. Again, consider your calling in Jesus. Consider your relationship personally with Him. Is it to be a bondservant of the Lord? 
Is it to live a life that is in service of Him, regardless of what you get out of the deal? Do you desire to be completely obedient? Consider your reason even for being in the barn tonight. Why would you come? Did you come because it's a safe place, a comfortable place to be, because you like the music, it makes you feel good, because when you leave here you feel blessed and relaxed and comforted? That, that's great. But I pray, and this is what I was praying before, because so often when I come in on Wednesday night, I know I'm going to leave here more content than when I walked in. Invariably. But I don't want to leave here that way. I want to leave here more obedient than when I walked in. And we all have that choice to make. How can I be more obedient to the Lord? If I want to hear the words again and see the works of God, there's only one way, and that is becoming a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Israel, I'm either going to contend or I'm going to persevere with the Lord. That term bondservant, it's used a lot. In the New Testament, the, the apostles continually use that for themselves. In fact, it's used of the early church. Acts 4.29 says they were bondservants of Jesus Christ. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, calls himself, or chapter 1, verse 1, a bondservant of the Lord. Paul, multiple times, Galatians 1.10, among the many. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, in James chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, in Jude, verse 1. And in the Revelation, John begins by writing the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who, now listen, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus even to all that he saw. Did you hear it in that verse? The word of God and everything he saw, the works of God. It is the bondservant who hears the word and the bondservant who sees the works of God. If you want to walk in that kind of spiritual dynamic, seeing what the Spirit is doing around us and hearing the Spirit speaking to us, you'll walk as an obedient bondservant. There's no other way. Well, verse 2, back in Isaiah chapter 43. Israel is named Yisrael. Again, one who contends with God and God puts His own name right into Jacob and right into the people who would come then out of Jacob. And in verse 2 he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Well, they know that by historical reference, don't they? And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. He's just in one verse mentioned the Red Sea and the Jordan. Your past tells you this, Israel. You know of my faithfulness. He says, When you walk through the fire... You will not be scorched. Well, when did that happen? Pretty much through most of Israel's history. The pain, the suffering, the struggle, the fire, even to the point of the ovens of Auschwitz. Nor will the flame burn you. He says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, Gadosh Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ran- ransom. Cush and Seba in your place. And Cush and Seba both may probably refer to Ethiopia. He says, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. What's he saying? Israel, I am taking you to the front of the line. I am not putting you at the back I am bringing you right up front. You are my chosen people and I will see you through and you will persevere by me. 
You will be Israel. Why? Why does God do this? Listen. It's so that they might be witnesses of His faithfulness. Now remember, we're in the court of reason, right? Still in the court of reason. And now, tonight, here, God calls Israel to the stand. He calls Israel to be a witness, the testimony of the faithfulness that is His very character. Israel to the stand. He has honored Israel. He has loved Israel. He's given place to Israel so that when they take the stand, Israel, the Jew, can stand up and say, Yes, by God I persevere. Israel. It's my name. And it is my experience. And God is faithful. Now, calling Israel to the stand could be a bit risky. I mean, think about it. What are they going to say? Messianic Jews, no problem. Great. They'll, they'll testify to Jesus as Messiah and all the God, God's plan unfolding. What about the secular Jew? What if you get a secular Jew on the stand, Lord? I don't know no God. I, I look at my history and I see nothing but constant devastation and persecution and hardship. What about the Jew who would stand on the stand and say, no, no, God's dead if, if He ever existed, and we have to look out for ourselves. What about the non-believing Jews? What if they are poor witnesses? Lord, it's risky to call them to the stand. They could be a hostile witness. Gang, the very existence of the Jews in the world is the testimony. They don't have to speak a single word. You call Israel to the stand, and their existence testifies to the tenacity and the faithfulness of a God who has preserved this people. Because as we've talked about many times, Israel should not exist. Especially not as a nation, but even as a people, they should have been consumed by the nations that they were driven into in in the dispersion. They should not have a culture. They should not have a background. They should not have a history. There should be no argument in the Middle East whatsoever because every single nation that ever was driven out of its own land was gone within 200 years. So God calls Israel to the stand and the Jew, whether a believing Jew or not, stands up there, looks out at the courtroom and the courtroom has to say, they exist. Proof of the faithfulness of God, His divine nature, His love, His mercy, His justice, His fidelity. It's all seen in Israel. And it's remarkable. And in verse 5, He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring, watch this, from the east, and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name in whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And this speaks prophetically of the ingathering of all of Israel. Question. When did that start? When did the ingathering of Israel begin? 1948? 1947. 1947. I would... Abraham. Well, that's the very beginning of Israel. The gathering, the bringing them in 1917. Okay? The in-gathering, I believe, 
So you all may be right. And I may be wrong, or I may be right, and, well, we know what that means for you. (laughs) I believe the ingathering of Israel began on the glorious day of Shavuot, what we know of as Pentecost. Now, follow me on this. Acts chapter 2, verse 5 says, There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. That would be, I think, north, south, east, and west. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Or why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now you might say, wait, Rick, now you're, you're treading on thin ice because this is starting to sound leaning toward a little replacement theology. Wasn't it the church that began on that day of Pentecost? Well, note again what the Lord says in verse 7 of chapter 43, Isaiah. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Everyone who is called by my name. Are you called by his name? Of course you are. Of course I am. I'm part of the promise. And that began, the ingathering of all of God's people to the glory of His name began at Pentecost. Everyone who's called by my name. Now, keep your finger there and go over to Ephesians chapter 1. Bible students who have been tracking these things, you know, we've looked at this before, but this is so absolutely critical to our understanding, to our theology. I want to share this one more time with you. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writing, of course, to the church in Ephesus. Remember, the primary, the root of the church in the first century was Jewish. For a long time, it was not even called Christianity. It was just another sect of the Jews. You got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, you got the Jesus Sissies. <laughs> Those people who were following that, that Rabbi Jesus, but their fellow Jews early on, first 30 years or so, would have said, well, yeah, they're, of course they're Jews. They still go to synagogue. They're, they're, they're still coming down to temple. In fact, I see them meeting in Solomon's portico and their numbers are growing by the day. They're Jews who follow this Rabbi. Okay? So Paul, now, in Ephesians chapter 1, writes the following. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Careful, because Calvinists love this passage. But for the wrong reason. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His good will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the, in the Beloved. In Him we, Paul says, have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, 
He also made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of all the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. Stop right there. Paul is talking to Jews. Paul, a Jew, is saying we were chosen. We were predestined from the beginning to be His people. We were predestined to be the people through whom Messiah would come. And through whom Messiah would then reconcile all things to Himself. It's us. We. He's not talking to the church there. Except for the fact that those are Jewish people in the church. But He's not talking to Gentiles. Not yet. Well, Rick, I think that's a theological stretch that you're just trying to force your opinion. Really, look at verse 13. In Him you also... Now who's He talking to? He's talking to the church. Now the Gentiles. And what's wonderful is all the promises of the first 12 verses, they get to be ours because we've been grafted in. You also... After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. But here's the point. Here's the whole reason, Jew and Gentile alike, to the praise of His glory. So the ingathering began at Pentecost. When Jews were first brought to salvation. To the Jew first, Paul says, and also to the Greek. Jews first came. And then those Jewish people began to realize as God gave Peter the vision, as God began to draw out Paul to go to the Gentiles, they began to realize, wow, God's salvation is bigger than we even imagined. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Everyone, back in Isaiah 43, everyone who is called by His name. This is not replacement theology. It's simply recognizing that the church began by the Spirit of God first among the Jewish people and then spread to the Gentiles. But I believe Pentecost was the beginning of the ingathering of Israel. What's the end of the ingathering? And that's obvious too. The end is when the remnant of Israel is physically and actually regathered into the promised land at the beginning of the promised kingdom. So the beginning started 2,000 years ago. The end, the summation of all things in God's perfect plan with Israel will take place when Jesus returns and begins His millennial kingdom. Everyone who is called by My name. Verse 8, Bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes. And the deaf, even though they have ears, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that they have functioning eyes and ears, they just aren't using them. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses declares the Lord, talking to Israel, and my servant whom I have chosen, 
so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses. Can you see the, the, the courtroom? And Israel's on the stand, and God's saying, you're my witnesses. And Israel's going, but, and they can't even open their mouth. They can't even respond because God is saying, just stand there and be proof to what I am saying. You are my witnesses. You have seen this. He says, and I am God. Verse 13, even from eternity I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act. Who can reverse it? Now, check this out. Verse 10 can be read a couple of different ways. Go back and look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. So one way to read that is simply that God is reminding Israel that they are His servant. You are my witnesses and my servant, whom I have chosen. You can also read it this way. And both ways work if you're just looking, take take all the punctuation out of it and just read it as it was written in Hebrew. And you see God may be saying, in addition to Israel's witness, there is another witness, my servant. You get what I'm saying? Listen to this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Oh, and my servant, whom I have chosen. You are my witnesses, so is he. And remember that Jesus Christ is called in Revelation 3.14 the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So the servant here may be Israel, but it may also be, you're my witnesses, Israel, and so is Jesus, who is, again, as we talked about Sunday, the perfect Jew, the ultimate Jew, the complete Jew. He's the perfect one. He is the faithful witness. In fact, on the witness stand... To be the faithful witness, you know what Jesus has to do? He doesn't have to speak a word. All He has to do is show us His hands and His feet. Show us the sword print in His side. Either way, whether this is talking the servant of Israel or of Jesus, we see Jesus in this passage that we just read. Look back at verse 3, all the way back to verse 3. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your... What? Savior. Look at verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no no Savior besides Me. Well, there's no Savior besides God. And Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Then Jesus is God the Lord. As Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, Gadosh Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, this is great. The Chaldeans here, of course, are the Babylonians. God says, I have sent to Babylon, and I'm going to bring them all down in in the ships in which they rejoice. The ships in which they rejoice probably refers to the pleasure ships 
of Babylon. And you mean the pleasure ships. Well, kind of the princess cruises of the day. For those of you who know, that's, I'm going to be on princess cruise next week. Anyway, not excited about that at all. These were not trading vessels. These were pleasure boats that sailed the Euphrates. The ships of their rejoicing. You know, picture the people in the, in the evening of Babylon with lighted boats just sailing up and down. Probably the, the well-to-do and those who could afford the, the pleasure ships and, and food would be brought aboard. And perhaps on the larger vessels you'd have dancers there and you'd have music playing and the pleasure ships of Babylon. But note this, the people who are cruising down the Euphrates in this prophecy are not the well-to-do. God calls them the fugitives. The fugitives, what's this talking about? Right here, God is going to jump ahead of the prophecy of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. He's going to jump beyond that to the day when the Babylonians themselves would become fugitives, when they would become exiles themselves. And Cyrus would come in and use those same pleasure boats of Babylon, use those boats to ship out the fugitives when he conquers Babylon. Which is why the fugitives are in ships in which they rejoice. They're not rejoicing, but they're pleasure boats. They're boats that were intended for joy, but now being used for exile. And it's ironic, and it's very specific, and often prophecy is. And to batten down the hatches, if you will, of this prophecy, the Lord reminds Israel of another cruise that took place that did not end so well, on a different body of water. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man, They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. And the reference here is back to Exodus 14, the Red Sea closing in on not pleasure boats filled with fugitives, but rather chariots filled with the might of Egypt and being drowned in the Red Sea. So God says, remember that? Remember that? Well, I'm going to do something else with some boats here in the future. Look back to the past. Remember the future. But the next verse is interesting. He says, Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Well, Lord, you just told us to. He says, I'm the one who did this. Remember back then? Then he says, Don't think about that. Don't ponder that. Don't consider that. Well, then why mention it? Why does God mention the past only to say, Don't look to the past? And I had to think on that one a bit. I think it's the same reason we study Isaiah. Or the same reason we continue to read and reread the Gospels. To open up the pages of Scripture, to consider the history of Israel, looking to the past. I think it's the same reason that we take communion every week. Remember, Jesus said, As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, do so in remembrance of Him. But Paul adds this in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What are you saying, Rick? Simply that we look back to the cross to look forward to His coming. We consider the past only in light of what it means for the future. And so we recall the past as it helps us declare the future. And so what the Lord's saying here is, you remember that? Okay, great. I'm doing this. I'm just proving to you I do what I say, and I did that, so now here we go. And you can be sure if I did that, I'm going to do what I'm about 
to proclaim to you. Don't get stuck in the past. God doesn't. He never gets stuck back there. What happened before, it may be a sign of faithfulness before, but He's always He's always doing a new thing. That's kind of the character of God. He is always going forward. Lamentations 3.22 The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a marvelous promise. We don't have to wait till New Year's Day to have a fresh start. Every day when your head pops off your pillow, brand new day, start over. His loving kindness is His grace, His mercy. It's fresh and new. I love that verse. Mark 2.22, Jesus says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And so rather than focus on Israel's past fickleness, on Israel's failure... He he mentions that only because he is now referencing Israel's future rescue. What's coming for them. The Lord knows that our hope, gang, is in looking forward. But there's some tragedy with this. Because by the time Isaiah is saying this, by the time the Lord is saying, do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past, in Isaiah's day, by that point, the glory days were over. All the great things about Israel were past tense. And most Jews at that time probably felt that way, looking back to the conquest of the land. That was history. You know, uh, David's kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, that was history. The great deliverance from Egypt, by that time, was likely for many people the stuff of legend and Hebrew folklore. They really walked through the party. They were, I don't know, but it shares a cool story. They were just far enough, but they still, listen, they do it today. And I don't mean this as judgment, I I say this with sorrow, that the Jewish people today are still looking back now 3,500 years to their great deliverance. There are many who would say that was the last time anything great ever really happened. That was the last time of great miracles, and I'm not even sure if I buy that, some would say, 3,500 years ago. And meanwhile, the Bible tells us, Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision, people perish. If all you can do is look back to a previous rescue, and you have no hope for the future, it doesn't matter how great the rescue was back then, if you have no hope for the future, you die. And so the Lord says in verse 19, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? You see, that's what a friend does. A friend makes you aware of what he's about to do. Right? Jesus said that, John 15. God says, will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Now, let's go to the past for a minute. God says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do this marvelous thing. And it's going to happen in the wilderness. And there's going to be waters there and rivers there. And the jackals and the ostriches, the animals of the, of the wilderness, they're going to sing my praise. You're going to sing my praise. It's going to be an excellent, praiseworthy thing. So he prophesies this. 
And many commentators immediately said that's fulfilled in the return of the exiles. Okay, um, no doubt. The exiles streamed across the wilderness coming from Babylon in the east back, back to the land of Israel, back to Jerusalem. And no doubt there was praise on their lips. In the first wave, Zerubbabel led the first wave. 49,897 Jews left Babylon and returned with Zerubbabel to the land. In the second wave, 60 years later, 1,772 Jews, so not much, uh, went ahead and returned with Ezra to the land. In the third wave, another 35 or 40 years after that, 49,942 Jews returned with Nehemiah in the third wave. All told, total that up, 101,611 exiles returned over a period of about a century. Of course, the vast majority never left Babylon. If you think about the millions in captivity, a scant 100,000, over a hundred years, mind you. It's not that glorious a return. Not really. We have very little info on the actual journeys back. Ezra gives us a little bit. If you want to just listen, I'll read this to you. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Or you can turn there. Ezra eight twenty-one. Ezra talks about their return. This is now second wave stuff. He says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him. But His power and His anger are against all those who forsake Him. So Ezra's saying, I didn't want to ask the king for help. I didn't want to go to the king for protection, because we said God will take care of us, so we better put our you know, money where our mouths are. So, verse 23 said, We fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and He listened to our entreaty. Down in verse 31, Ezra writes, And then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. And that's it. That's all the history we get of the return of the exiles. Nehemiah does not describe anything of the actual journey from Babylon back. Zerubbabel does not describe, or the book of Ezra doesn't describe what happened on the way. We have no idea what actually happened. And so it leaves me wondering when I read Isaiah 43 about this new thing that's going to spring forth that God is going to do for Israel. This marvelous thing. And the beasts of the field are going to be glorifying Him. And there's going to be rivers in the, in the wilderness and, and the people will be praising. I read this and I think, does the return of the exiles, does it eclipse or even compare with the exodus of the three million children out of Egypt? That fantastic story that we have some 12 or more chapters, actually from about Exodus 12 all the way through Deuteronomy, is dedicated to the return to the people being brought and delivered and brought back to the land. And we get three verses out of Ezra for the exiles. Is God talking about that? Could He be talking about that? Is that 
you know, the roadway in the wilderness, the, the animals, the, the rivers in the desert. Is, is that what he's referring to in this prophecy? And some believe that it is. But here's where I'm, what I'm getting at. There was that great exodus from Egypt. There was the return of the exiles from Babylon. But there will be a third exodus from exile unlike anything that anyone has ever seen. And we already read about it back in verse uh, 6 of 43. I'll say to the verse 5, Do not fear I am with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now that's an exodus. And that's going to be a marvelous thing. Israel's Messiah King returns. You know the history, well, the prophecy of the history, which is not yet history, but will be history. When Jesus comes back and regathers His people Israel back to the land from all the ends of the earth, Jesus said in Matthew 24.30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And that, gang, I believe is the new thing of Isaiah's prophecy. That's the new thing God is pointing to. And the return of the exiles, just a kind of like a Polaroid snapshot, you know, of what is really going to come. 100,000 brought across the desert, brought them safely home, but oh, it's going to be so much more. So much more than that. You know what's marvelous about the Lord? Is that even after that new kingdom which he spends much of the Old Testament prophets talking about, even after that he tells us what's going to happen. He doesn't stop there. We not only have the rapture to look forward to, and I do, and then the millennial kingdom to look forward to after that, which I do. After that, he says, well, Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 21 and 22 describe that. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem in breathtaking detail. In literal detail. And the Lord, He just keeps us looking forward. You know, to the rapture, to the kingdom, to the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem, right on into eternity beyond. He just says, look ahead. Guess what's coming? Look. It's marvelous. And I think... That once we get into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, we're not going to, like a wave, just kind of settle back. I think we're still going to be going forward. I think as soon as we hit that point, God's going to come around and go, okay, I got a new thing. (laughs) You're not going to believe this one. And off we go. Because God is always doing new things. Those of you who were here eight and a half years ago, I may have shared this before, but we sat in that living room in the very first Bible study I actually went back yesterday and and hit the the, the very first teaching, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. First teaching that we had as a fellowship. And the first thing that I said was, God loves to do new things. He just loves to do new stuff, you know? And at that time, I was thinking about the bridge and this brand new church and 20 people and what's going to happen? But He does. He loves to do a new thing. And just when you thought your life was getting a little old, guess what? God loves to do new things. How's that for bolstering obedience? I mean, doesn't that kind of give a little shot in the arm of, of just being obedient to the Lord? 
because he's going to continue doing these things. Tragically, it is yet to sink in for Israel. Verse 22. Verse 22, yet, after all of this, kind of hate to see the word yet there, but it's there. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob. But you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. Now, get this, gang. Those two lines tell us something about what period of time he's talking about. The first half of verse 23, You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices, could just refer to any time in Israel's history because there were many times where they were flaky with their offerings. But God then says, I have not burdened you with offerings. I have not wearied you with incense. What does He mean? I didn't expect this of you during this particular period of time. Okay, read on. You have not bought me, you have bought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. You know, the sins of those you love are exhausting. Now, my own sin is exhausting enough for me. Trust me, I could just all by myself would be pretty weary <laughs> considering my sin and my struggles. But when I add on top of that the sins of people I love and I, and I see choices that people I love and I care for make and I just go, oh. you almost just don't want to think about it, you know? Can you imagine being God? And how wearying the sin of man must be for him. And he says this about Israel, you have wearied me with your iniquities. The time period I believe he's referring to here in these three verses is the Babylonian exile. Because during the Babylonian exile, with the temple destroyed and the people in Babylon, there were 70 years with absolutely no sacrifices, no offerings. And God recognized that would be the case. No temple, no sacrifice. You're in captivity... No offerings. God gets that. He understands that. Which is why I believe He says in verse 23, you have, uh, I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. I haven't asked for this of you. And I want you to think about what this means. For 70 years, while the people of Israel were in exile, there was only one possibility for their sin. It just piled up. For 70 years. No atonement. No Yom Kippur. No going to temple to lessen the weight. It just piled up and piled up and piled up. It reminds me of a terrible thing that happened. We had been in our house about a year and uh, our septic system wasn't smelling very good. And I went outside and I looked and we've got you know those big old lids and I have, I, there's no nice way to say this other than seepage. I'm like, I don't think that's supposed to happen. Now, I grew up in Southern California. You know what happens when you flush? You never see it again. It's done. <laughs> I assume it goes out to the Pacific. I'm not sure. You know, But just they took care of it. The city managed all that for us. I go outside. I'm like, what is this? So I call the septic guy. <laughs> I won't say which one. 
cracks me up. This guy clearly has worked with septic for a long time. He pops the lid off and he's reaching down in there. I'm like, would you like a glove or something? Oh, no, it's okay. You know, and he's doing it. I'm like, this is disgusting. Really? And it turns out there's a baffle in there that was supposed to go out and up. But when they put in our septic system a year before, they put it out and sideways. And it was not functioning correctly. And so, yeah. Now, I I tell you that graphic and kind of gross story because, gang, sin is far more disgusting. And for 70 years, the sin of Israel was piling up. There was no release for it. There was no forgiveness because there was no atonement because there were no offerings. And what does God do with all that? Verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Wow! This is without sacrifice, without offerings, without the temple. How can God do that? One word, grace. And suddenly with this single verse in the middle of Isaiah, in the middle of the Hebrew Scriptures, I realized it wasn't the offerings that caused God to pass over the sins of Israel. It wasn't the behavior of the people. It wasn't the sacrifices. It wasn't the temple worship. It was the grace of God even then. It has always been the grace of God that passes over sin. The grace of God that did not remember their former sins, but passed over them until Jesus would die on the cross. And for all those who walk in faith in the Lord, that His grace then would wash backward and forward, covering everyone who believes in the Lord. Grace. Grace, grace, grace. God says in verse 26, put me in remembrance. That by itself is a whole sermon. (laughs) Put me in remembrance, He says. Just circle that and think about that. Put me in remembrance. If you're going to remember something, remember me. Don't look to the past. Look to the perfect Father. Remember me. Let us... Argue our case together. State your case that you may be proved right. Your first forefathers sinned. Could be Adam. Could be Abraham. But I'm guessing it's probably one of those two guys that God's talking about. Of course, we know about Adam's sin. And if you read the story of Abraham, he had plenty of his own. But God's saying all the way back to the earliest forefather that you can remember, sin was already in the picture. In fact, Abraham was pre-law and sin was pre-sacrifice. But Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, right? He says, your spokesmen have transgressed against me. The spokesmen, the prophets, the teachers of Israel. False, unfortunately, most of them. They've transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. The princes are the priests, the priestly hierarchy, the Levitical priests. And I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. Now understand this. He has already said, I wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sin. Yet, I'm going to allow some pollution. I'm going to let your septic system back up, Israel. I'm going to let it seep out. Why? So that you recognize your desperate need for me. Why does God allow us ever to wallow in any of our sin? That by the time we begin to wallow, we go, Oh no, Lord, I really did blow it. 
I really do need Your grace. I, I forgot, but I remember now. I need You, Lord. And so the Lord creates this opportunity. Grace will come, but He allows sin to have its full effect. And since the beginning of the world, this picture of Israel in captivity really is a picture of the world in captivity. From the day Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden to present day, the sin of man has been piling up and getting deeper and bigger and spreading out and filling the cracks and the crevices of the world. And the devil looks on with glee. (laughs) Not the show, although he probably enjoys that too. He looks on saying, hey! This is great. Look at all this sin. Look at the increasing despair in the world. And the world is getting covered with it. And just when we thought we were dead in our sins, God does a new thing. He applies the healing balm of His grace. Therefore, Paul says, Romans 5.12, just as though through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many." great Scottish preacher of the late 19th century, Alexander White, once said, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that's grace. Chapter 44. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. Yeshurun. Yeshurun is a name we've seen before. In fact, we saw it three times in the book of Deuteronomy. One time here in Isaiah. It's only used four times in all of Scripture. It's a name, a pet name, if you will, that God gives Israel. A name He uses exclusively for them. Deuteronomy 32.15, He says, Yeshurun grew fat and waxed, or kicked, You are grown fat, thick, and sleek, and then you forsook God who made you and scorned the rock of your salvation. Yes, Sharon. Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, And he, that is God, was king in Yeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered and the tribes of Israel together. Deuteronomy 33.26 There is none like the God of Yeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in His majesty. And the Hebrew name Yeshurun means upright one. Upright one. And the context is just marvelous. After discussing and revealing the pollution of Israel's sin, and their rebellion, and their fickleness, and all the things of this servant who just can't get it together, he turns around and he says, Don't fear Jacob, my servant, and Yeshurun, who I have chosen. My upright one. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of of honor that he uses. The Greek, by the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of this, translates to the word agapaminos. Agapaminos, which means the beloved one. The Agapaminos comes from the word agapao, or agape, the unconditional love of God. 
And so those Jewish scholars who were translating the Hebrew Scriptures into the Septuagint, into the Greek translation, they recognized Yeshurun as a just an, not just upright one, but, but far beyond that. It was a term of absolute and unconditional love by God the Father to His people Israel, who He calls Yeshurun. These same people who burdened God with their sin and wearied Him with their iniquities. You know what that tells us? You cannot out grace. I'm not suggesting you try. But I'm telling you, we can't do it. Paul said, what shall we say then? Are we to consider continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How should we who died to sin still live in it? But the reality is, even though a person is inundated with sin, the grace of Jesus Christ is the greatest cleansing agent that has ever been known on the face of the earth. And so when you look at friends or family or loved ones who seem distant from the Lord or or stuck in a place of deep sin, or perhaps you are in a place in your life where you're like, I'm not sure if I can come back from this severe failure, the cleansing of Jesus is bigger than any sin we can ever sin. How he saturates the deepest darkness. He fills all those places. He goes to the most hidden places of our lives. And that's what causes me then to become upright and beloved. Like Israel, Yeshurun. Paul says, God being rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When did He do that? When we were in exile. When we were in captivity. When we were dead. Amazing. And so we see this in God's faithfulness to Israel. His witness, they're still up there on the stand and we're looking at Israel on the stand going, yep, He's right. He's a faithful God. Yes, He is the only Savior. Yes, He must be God the Lord. Verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another one will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. And gang, the primary sense now of this passage is not physical, but spiritual. This prophecy is not how God's going to bring the people back across the desert from the exile. It's not about how He's going to return the people in the final regathering of the remnant of Israel at the end. This is a spiritual promise of a spiritual reality, something that God is going to do. And Jesus put it this way, John 7.38, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's the outpouring we talked about Sunday. The overflow. I'm going to overflow you. What does he say? I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. That's water on thirsty land. Streams on the dry ground. My spirit and my blessing. It's just going to be overflowing. Washing on the outside, on the inside. Everywhere you look, my spirit. Overflowing. Gang, this is what happens when we experience the overflow of the spirit as we talked about. The increase, or the the outpouring of His Spirit, gang, results in the increase 
of obedience. Yet another reason why we keep talking about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God and the absolute necessity that not only we as individuals, but we as a fellowship have this outpouring going on, have His Spirit not only in us or with us, but also overflowing us, upon us. Because it is only as the Spirit is all over us that our obedience starts to tick up a few notches. And the more of His Spirit that is washing me constantly, the more obedient I am. Verse 5 indicates that when the Spirit falls wholesale upon the remnant of Israel, that people will be drawn to them. People will see this amazing thing happening. We're talking about the sealed 144,000. Remember last week, Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 sealed from all the 12 tribes. And as people see this, it will be remarkable. And verse 5 tells us, this one will say, I am, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. Hey, hey, Jewish person, what's going on? What do you have? I need that. As the world is going through tribulation. Another one will write on his hand belonging to the Lord, and note this, and will name Israel's name with honor. And a common characteristic of someone who is awash in the Holy Spirit and God's grace is this. They will name Israel with honor. You kind of can tell. Someone who loves Israel, good chance they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot be baptized with the Holy Spirit and not love and honor His people, Yeshurun, Israel. That's why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Now listen, I just have one more thing to share with you tonight. We're not going to do the whole chapter. We're going to stop and we'll pick up a week from Wednesday. We will be here next Wednesday, by the way. So come on back. It's going to be a time of worship and prayer. It'll be a precious time. We Actually, you... The collective we, I, will be sailing. That's right. Pleasure vessel, you know. That'll be on the Euphrates or something, I don't know. Verse 4, note this. Verse 4 says, They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. The Psalms begin by declaring how blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Right On his law he meditates day and night. And Psalm 1 verse 3 says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. And water is always a picture. Oil and water both, a picture of the Holy Spirit. But specifically, streams of water, flowing water, portrays the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And the man who loves the law of the Lord and who meditates on the law is like a tree planted, and there's that rushing, flowing water constantly going by and and growing the tree. Same idea here, but God specifically mentions poplars. Or if you have the King James Version, willows. Same tree. It's the same word in the Hebrew. The poplar prefers wet soil. And bright sunlight. So a poplar loves to be planted by streams of water. Helps it to grow very well. Poplars can grow to a towering 150 to 160 feet. Typically anywhere from about 50 feet up to, you know, three times that. Their trunks can grow up to 8 feet in diameter. 
And if you want a local picture of a poplar, many of you know this as you're driving on Highway 20 right before it splits to Anacortes and Rogue Harbor on the right side. That's a poplar farm. All those real tall trees that are always there. It's actually a paper farm. They grow the trees to get paper. This poplar mentioned here, or the willow, is a very specific kind of tree. It's called the Populus Euphraticus, okay, which is simply the Euphrates poplar. It's an indigenous tree to the Middle East. It still grows all over the Middle East in Israel and all around, and especially in well-watered places such as on the banks of the Euphrates. Now, track this with me. Which country did the Euphrates flow through? Iraq, Persia, which was ancient Babylon. Babylon. So what? So listen. Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows or poplars, in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. Poplars in Psalm 137, where they hung their harps and they wept, is the same poplar mentioned here in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 44, like poplars by streams of water, you're going to spring up. What's the point? The exiles hung their harps in sorrow. But the Lord says, when I pour my spirit upon you, you're going to spring up like poplars. In other words, you're not going to be the weeping willow anymore. You're going to be the praising poplar. I'm going to take this horrible event, and you will recall this, and Psalm 137 does it, and it just, it, it's heart-wrenching. You know, if I, if I forget the O Jerusalem, may I forget my right hand. You know, it's just, it's just this heartbreaking by the waters. We, we wept at Babylon, the poplars. We hung up our hearts and said, we can't sing. This is too devastating. This is too awful. And the Lord has the presence of mind, which is just amazing to me, in this prophecy 150 years before the captivity ended, to say, you're going to hang your harps on the willows. It's going to be painful. You're going to weep. But... I am going to do a new thing and you are going to grow up taller, stronger, more beautiful than those weeping willows and you will praise my name because of it. I think that's marvelous because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 Thus says the Lord, verse 6, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first... And I am the last. Here not with the last. He just says, I am the last. And there is no God besides me. This is the second of three times the Lord calls Himself first and last in Isaiah. But did you catch what He said at the beginning of verse 6? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. This is either two aspects of the character of God with Israel, or... It's Isaiah alluding to the fact that the Lord is King and Jesus is the Redeemer. And I think that's probably what's going on here. Maybe not an either or, maybe it's a both and. Verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation, the ancient people, that's Israel. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. 
Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? The Lord says, I know of none. And so once again, the simple appearance of Israel on the witness stand is sound testimony to the faithfulness of God that He is the Lord and there truly is no other. We're going to pray, but I want to encourage you. Everything that we've read, what we've talked about tonight, how does it affect your obedience? How does this draw you into a place of greater faithfulness to the Lord who is faithful to you? And God, I just ask that. Father, even when it comes to my obedience, I need Your Spirit to help me. When it comes to my response, Lord, You say, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I want to see it. And I want to be part of it. I want to wake tomorrow morning and be part of the new thing that is tomorrow. And and the day after that, to wake and be a part of the new thing that is that day. And when You come to be part of that new thing, And when you return to be part of the new thing. And when you create anew again. Father, I just want to be carried along on the the wind of Your Spirit. I don't have to know where we're going. You know, and that's good enough for me. But I pray, Father, that my life, I pray that our lives would reflect such a love for You that we simply would obey You. Do what You ask us to do, whether we get it or not. Whether we understand or not. To simply say, My God proclaimed it, therefore I will do it. Father, praise Your name. We thank You for Your grace. And it's in Jesus we pray tonight. Amen.